We'll be in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26. We'll be going through verse 31. My title for the sermon this morning is Warnings to the Apostate. Let me just start by reading Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One of the most um, comforting doctrines in all of Scripture is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That God preserves his people. That he keeps those who are his That once God saves, once God justifies and declares someone to be righteous, that declaration is not changed by anything. Nothing can separate you from God. Jesus himself in John 10 verse 27, he said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a promise from Jesus himself, and that's not my interpretation. That's what the text says. No one will snatch them out of his hand. And then Jesus adds to that the very next verse, verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you're more powerful than God, you can lose your salvation. Paul in Romans 8 asks this question, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or a sword? And the answer to that is nobody can separate a genuine believer from Christ. The believer A true believer is secure. A believer might backslide for a minute, but they will always come back. They will always return back to their Savior. Why? Because God is preserving them. And yet, despite that, despite those promises, despite that clear teaching from Scripture that true believers always persevere to the end, there are passages that warn against falling away. Hebrews 10.26. Hebrews 6 also has a similar passage. And the writer of the Hebrews is writing to Jews who apparently were converted. That is to say, they made a profession of faith. He doesn't know which one of his readers are actually Christians and which ones are merely professing to be believers. They're all professing, they're all confessing Christ, but not all of them are actually in Christ. They've all made a confession. But now he has received word that many of these Jews who say they've converted to Christ, many of them are now thinking about going back and embracing their old life, specifically embracing Judaism again. 
and the sins of their old life. And so the whole book is all about him trying to convince them that they have something better in Christ, that Christ is better, that Christianity is better. And he tells them over and over again, you've made a confession, now hold fast that confession. Don't give up on the confession that you've made. Hebrews 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. Hold on to it, don't let it go. Even here in Hebrews 10, if you look back at verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Notice he doesn't say hold fast to your salvation. He says hold fast to the profession, what you have said about Christ. Hold fast to that. Live that out. The issue here is that they have made a profession of faith. They have lived, at least externally, like Christians. They identify as Christians. They go to church. They know all the things to say. They even bring a meal for the potluck. And now they're talking about abandoning that profession. And in response, the writer of the Hebrews makes a strong argument, don't turn away. You have something better than Judaism. You have something that is better than your sin. Throughout the book, if you go through the book, he tells them that Jesus is better than the angels, that Jesus is better than Moses, that Jesus is a better high priest, that he offers better sacrifices, that Jesus has made a better covenant, that you have better promises. Everything is better under Christ. Why would you leave Christ and go back to what is obsolete and passing away in the old covenant? So he's made a positive argument at this point why they shouldn't turn away. And now he transitions to more of a negative argument of why you shouldn't turn away. In Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, you're going to see four warnings against apostasy. Four warnings against apostasy so that you do not turn away from Christ. Let's look at the first warning. First warning. Embracing sin is apostasy. You know, perseverance in the faith doesn't happen by accident. It happens through the persevering power of God and the intentional daily effort of the believer to hold fast to their confession of faith. Both are necessary. When we talk about the perseverance of the saints, we're not saying, sit back and let God. There's nothing passive about the Christian life. You have to be intentional. Apostasy is always intentional. It is the willful rejection of the truth that has been received, and it's the simultaneous, simultaneous embracing of sin. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's, a de- that's an excellent definition of what it means to be apostate. The apostate is a person who has received the knowledge of the truth and then rejects that knowledge and turns back to their sin and goes back to the old life. The term knowledge here refers to a full understanding. This isn't superficial knowledge. They have heard and they have understood more than enough. Ignorance here is not the problem. They heard the gospel. They understood the gospel, at least intellectually. 
They understood the consequences of what it means not to trust in Christ. They heard about the danger of sin. They have had more than enough knowledge of the things of God from which they should have been able to come to saving faith. They should have been able to repent and give up on themselves and run to Christ in a saving way. Peter discussed these people's response to truth in 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Notice they had a knowledge. And they turned from their knowledge. What they knew the Bible said, they understood the theology, they had a practical knowledge of the truth that they could live out. They saw how applying Scripture to their life can change their life. They sat in church and watched lives change by the power of the gospel. Apostate doesn't have a problem with understanding. Apostate doesn't have a problem with a lack of evidence. The apostate turns willfully. How? Back to the beginning of verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully. You might translate that as intentionally, deliberately. It refers to doing something without compulsion, without restraint, without hindrance. This is not talking about a believer who's really fighting and struggling and falls back into sin. And you can say, well, yeah, I did it intentionally. That's not what he's talking about here. This is unrestrained, willful sin that the person chooses to keep. I know the truth. I don't care. I like my sin, and I'm going to keep doing it. They voluntarily choose their sin over Christ. They know it's wrong. They know Jesus hates it. They know it is a sin for which Christ died to liberate them, and they don't care. They want their sin. Hebrews 6, verse 6, he says, When they do this, they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This is not the once-in-a-while kind of sinning. Like I said, this is not a believer who accidentally backslides. The grammar indicates that this is ongoing, habitual sinning. This is their life. This is a pattern of their life. It's not that they struggle to be holy. They don't want to be holy. They don't have a desire for holiness. They know how to come to church and look good. But when they go home, they don't have the ability. They come to church because they enjoy the fellowship. They enjoy being around trustworthy and honest people. They think church is a good environment for their children but inwardly they love their sin. And their private lives are marked by the constant return of sin. Going back over and over and over. This is apostasy. Embracing sin. Turning from the truth that you know to embrace sin that Christ hates. I want you to notice, notice something else in verse 26. Notice he says, for if we go on sinning. 
That pronoun is so important. I know there's a whole lot of different views on this, but I think the Apostle Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. I think you can make a strong argument for that. Notice the writer includes himself in this. There's no exception. If we continue in sin, no one on earth is exempt from this. To embrace sin is to begin the first step to apostasy. If you think you can hold on to your little pet sin and just keep on doing it, nobody will know, it's no big deal, it's not a problem, you have started down that path. Then you justify and say, well, Jesus will forgive me. No, you are headed down the path to a hard heart and to ultimately turning from Christ. Sin is deadly. A little bit of sin is kind of like a little bit of arsenic in your coffee. You wouldn't drink the coffee. To embrace sin is not just to have a bad decision. You have to let go of Jesus to grab onto your sin. Because you cannot hold to both. To embrace sin is to reject Christ. It is to reject his atoning work on the cross. In the verse 26, if you do that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In embracing your sin, you have rejected the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice that he paid on the cross to pay for sin. The one sacrifice that I actually purify you, you've turned away from it and you've embraced your sin. And now that you've done that, to what sacrifice are you going to turn? Who's going to purify you now? You know, in the Bible, there's only two kinds of sacrifices. There is the sacrifices, the sacrifice of Christ, and then there's the sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews spends a great deal of his time in the book of Hebrews, showing that the sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood are ineffective. They are worthless when it comes to salvation. Nobody was saved by those sacrifices. You're already in chapter 10. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 10. I want to just show you this. This is all the way through the book, but chapter 10 does the job. Chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Did you notice the last part? They can never make perfect those who draw near. The Levitical priests of the Old Testament had to offer sacrifices over and over and over and over again because those sacrifices didn't work. So each year the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he'd sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and every year he would go in there and he would see the blood from last year as a reminder for him that the sin still remains. You are not purified yet. This is proven in verse 2, Hebrews 10, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Speaking of the sacrifices. Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. If those sacrifices actually purified you, why do it again? There's no need for it. You're clean. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Your sin is an infinite debt against God. Blood of a finite goat is not enough. 
They, these sacrifices were not efficacious. They could not make the worshiper right with God. And that's what he says down in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were, are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Those sacrifices merely pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ that would take away sins. And when Christ came and he died and he offered himself and he sacrificed himself on the cross, he offered a sacrifice that takes away sin and he takes it away perfectly. Hebrews 10 verse 12, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Every bit of the sin washed away, complete, done, no longer to be brought against you, paid for. And he say, well, yeah, but, you know, I got saved, you know, 20 years ago, and I'm still sinning. Hebrews 10, verse 14. If you don't know this verse, this is a great verse. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, if you didn't know this, they have a priesthood because on the Roman Catholic altar, they sacrificed Jesus every single day. Because according to the Catholic Catechism, you can die in the grace and the friendship of God and still be imperfectly purified. Jesus could be sacrificed a million times and you're still not purified. That is not the God, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. There was one sacrifice. That sacrifice was offered a single time and that one offering perfects for all time those for whom it was made. And it is that one single sacrifice that the writer of the Hebrews now points to in verse 26. If you reject that one sacrifice through embracing your sin, if you turn away from it and you say, I don't want that sacrifice. I don't accept that lamb that was slain on my behalf. Where are you going to turn to now? What sacrifice are you going to go to? What sacrifice will purify you? There's nothing left. That's the point of verse 26. There is no other means by which you can be reconciled with God. Your sin remains. And that's what he says. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You rejected the one sacrifice that could actually purify you. That actually perfects you. By embracing your sin, you have rejected that sacrifice. And there is no other. Christian, you need to understand something. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah said it is wicked beyond everything else. Don't be deceived into thinking that the preservation of the saints means you can go on with your sin. I don't care how small your sin is. Let me say it another way. I don't care how small my sin is. It doesn't matter. In embracing that sin, you are rejecting the one sacrifice that can actually purify you. Embracing sin is apostasy. If you embrace your sin and reject the truth and the sacrifice of Christ, there is no hope for you. This is why the church was given church discipline. And churches who refuse to do that don't care about those souls. 
who are embracing sin and sitting in the pews every week. To embrace sin is to reject the sacrifice of Christ. Second warning to the apostate. Apostasy brings judgment. Apostasy brings judgment. That one-time sacrifice of Christ is what gives you hope. The writer of Hebrew actually, Hebrews actually talks about hope multiple times throughout the book. I'm just going to give you some verses here. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We have a hope steadfast and sure because we have this one perfect sacrifice of Christ. The believer can have hope. Hebrews 7, 19, speaking of the sacrifice of Christ. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we can draw near to God. It's through this one-time sacrifice of Christ that I have access to God, that I can worship God, that God will actually hear me and dwell with me and answer my prayers. Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The apostate does not have hope. Why? They don't have hope because they've, they've rejected the one sacrifice that can give them hope. And they've turned from the better hope back to their sin. So if they don't have hope, what do they have? Verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Without that sacrifice, their sin remains, their guilt remains, and they are under the wrath of God. And that is what they should expect. That is their only hope, is wrath. A terrifying expectation of judgment. Expectation here refers to something that is certain to happen. It's not up for debate. If you embrace your sin, if you reject the sacrifice of Christ, you will face judgment. And that judgment here is described as being terrifying. It means what it says. It's terrifying. This word here, though, for terrifying is only used three times. Jesus wants here, verse in 27. In 26, verse 26, it is a terrifying thing. It's used again in, again in chapter 12, verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of ter- fear and trembling. The terrible there is the word. This term only appears in reference to God's judgment. His judgment is the one thing that you should fear, that the apostate should be terrified of. Why? Because of the punishment that awaits them in that judgment. Verse 27 again. And the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. He quotes Isaiah 26, 11, where God promises to devour his enemies with fire. Note, his enemies, not his friends. You as a Christian, if you are truly saved, you are not an enemy of God. Romans 5, 1, you have peace with God. But to his enemies, to those who are apostates, God promises to devour with fire. In the Greek here, it is 
Zealous fire. The term zealous refers to someone or something that is intent on achieving a purpose. It's dedicated for one task, and it describes the fire. What is the purpose of that fire? That fire's purpose is to consume. That is to say, its purpose is their destruction, to do away with something completely. I'm not talking about annihilation, that you cease to exist. He's talking about the intensity of the fire. You cannot hold on to your sin. You cannot willfully embrace your sin and think you're a believer in Christ and think you're going to be going to heaven one day. Because to embrace sin is to reject Christ. It is the beginning of apostasy. To love and to practice sin as a pattern of life is a wholesale rejection of his sacrifice. And if you do that, if you reject that sacrifice, you will only have one thing, a terrifying expectation of a judgment and a fire that is there to consume and to destroy you. That is all you have hope of. You have no other hope. Your apostasy will bring judgment. And that judgment is then described in the third warning. The third warning to the apostate. Your punishment will be more severe. People always like to talk about the guy sitting out on an island somewhere who's never heard the gospel. Is he going to hell? His judgment will be far less than the apostate. Apostasy is the worst sin a person can commit. To know the truth of God's grace, to know the truth of the mercy offered to you in Christ, to know what Christ has done for you, that God himself died on a cross for you and suffered the wrath you, are des- you deserve for you to know that and then reject it is the most wicked, heinous thing you could do. It brings about the worst punishment any sinner could receive. And I'm not just saying that. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. The lesser here is setting aside the law of Moses. That is to say, in the Old Covenant, if you intentionally disobeyed the law of Moses, you were punished for it. By disobeying it, you were setting aside, you were rejecting it, you were nullifying it, you were ignoring it. And the person who did that dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The Mosaic Law was very clear on the standard of evidence. You needed two or three witnesses. If you met the standard... Done. Judgment happened. This is in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verse 2 and 5 and 6. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant, verse 5, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, and you shall stone them to death on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. He who is to die shall be put to death. That was the crime for rejecting the law of Moses. That was the crime for rejecting the blood of goats and bulls.
Under that covenant, two or three witnesses would sign your death warrant. Notice in Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Notice there's no provision for mercy. There's no court of appeal. There's no chance for pardon. There's no chance you're going to have a defense attorney stand up and point out a technicality and you get off on a technicality. If you set aside the law of Moses and there was two witnesses, you died. You would be taken out outside the camp or outside the city and you would be stoned. And then you would be buried under a pile of stones so everybody would know not to go near you. Now, if that's true for setting aside a covenant that is obsolete and passing away, What do you think is going to happen when you set aside an eternal covenant sealed in the blood of the Son of God? Hebrews 10, verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Turning from the Mosaic law was punishable by your physical death. To turn from the truth of the new covenant to reject the sacrifice of Christ brings about a punishment that is far worse than just physical death. Why is the punishment more severe for the apostate? Verse 29, because the apostate has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now that idea of trampling something underfoot you already understand that term. If someone takes the American flag, throws it on the ground, and walks on it, are they complimenting the United States or are they insulting? To trample here refers to treating something with scorn, to treat it contemptuously. The term was used by Jesus when he gave the disciples the power and authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. When you stomp on a scorpion, do you treat it with delight and joy and happiness and love? You treat it scornfully, contemptuously. You trample on our foot things that are worthless. You walk on dirt and bugs. Here the apostate said to walk on, to trample, to treat with scorn and contempt the blood of the Son of God. To treat Jesus like a serpent or a snake, to stomp on him as though... He was detestable in your eyes. Again, this is not ignorance. The apostate knows who he's doing this to. He has received the truth. We saw that in verse 26. And yet he despises Christ and treats him like a piece of trash on the ground to be stepped on. And therefore, the apostate's punishment will be more severe because he has trampled Christ and treated Christ as being worthless. Verse 29 again, and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, this gets a little controversial. And the controversy stems around the ending there, by which he was sanctified. What does he mean he was sanctified? This is why people think this is talking about a believer who's losing his salvation. Some suggest, who is this talking about, first of all? Who was sanctified? Some suggest this must be referring to the apostate. In that sense, the apostate was sanctified. 
and purified by the blood of Christ, and the person was an actual believer in Jesus. So when Hebrews 10 says he was sanctified, what it's really saying is he was a believer and he treated Christ with scorn and walked away and became an apostate. Now, if we understand the phrase by which he was sanctified as a reference to the apostate, this would suggest that a believer can lose their salvation. If that was true, and this was talking about a believer losing their salvation, that means verse 29 contradicts verse 14 that I just read a few minutes ago. Remember verse 14? For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That would make a contradiction in the very chapter. And since this chapter is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that contradiction cannot exist. If Christ sanctifies you, you are sanctified for all times. Others say that the verse 29 refers to Christ being sanctified. In that sense, sanctified here refers to being set apart to be consecrated for the purpose of sacrificing himself for the sake of elect. I think this makes a significant change in the flow of the verse. It would shift the focus from the apostate over to Jesus. I don't think that works. So I do think that this is talking about the apostate, but we have to try to understand what does he mean by sanctified? Clearly, he's not saying he was a believer. This is not referring to moral sanctification in the sense of being sanctified as you as a Christian are being sanctified. This is referring to cultic sanctification. That is, they were sanctified in the sense of setting themselves apart for the service of God. The apostate professed to be a believer. He professed to be part of the covenant. He professed to be part of the people of God. And he sets himself apart and says, I have been set apart by Christ, by the blood of Christ, I am one of his. And they live as part of the covenant people of God. They outwardly appear to be part of it. To some extent, they behaved like everybody else in the church. They changed their behavior to some extent. They gave up the really obvious sins that everybody would notice, so they could point to some fruit. They started associating with the church and going to church functions, doing the things that Christians do. And in that sense, the apostate was sanctified. His life did grow in some level of holiness, even if if that was just an external display. The term for sanctified here is used in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it it is received with gratitude. Here it is, For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This term doesn't refer to sanctified in the sense of salvation, but a setting apart for the service of God. The apostles had set themselves apart for God. They associated and identified themselves with God. They claimed to be members of the new covenant. And then after all of that, they embraced their sin. They willfully returned back to their old life their old sin patterns, and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. Literally here, the apostate considered profane the blood of the covenant. The term profane is also a cultic term. It refers to treating something as being common. There are profane things and there are holy things. Holy things you could take into the temple. 
set aside specifically for the purpose of serving God. Profane things were to be shunned and rejected. When he says regarded as unclean, what he's saying is, he's saying the blood of the covenant was unfit for spiritual use. They are to be, it is to be rejected, to be shunned. Here, the apostate looks at the blood of the covenant, the covenant he once embraced and claimed to be part of, and he views it as unclean. He views it as unworthy of his time, unworthy of his attention, something that should be cast away, done away with, not useful to me. I don't need that anymore. Hebrews 10.29, he has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. By insult here, it means exactly what you think it means. It means to mock or to insult. Here is a person who has been given the truth. They've understood a certain level of that truth. They understood sin. They understood salvation through Christ. They came to a full enough understanding of biblical truth that they should have trusted in Christ, that they were able to deceive the people around them into believing that they are actually Christians. Others with the same amount of knowledge or even less knowledge repented and truly trusted in Christ. But the apostate had all of that and more and yet still said, that's worthless, I don't need it, I don't want it. And they despised his blood as being worthless and common and profane. God offered them grace in Christ. And they turned their nose up at it and said, no thanks. I don't want it. And that is an attack on him. That is an insult to him. Isaiah 63, verse 10, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. They grieved his Spirit. They hurt and offended the Spirit. Knowledge has consequences. You are responsible for what you know. And you will be judged according to your level of knowledge and your obedience to that knowledge. That's why James 3 says, let not many of you become teachers. Because the more you know, the more you have to be able to obey. To sit in church all of your life, to hear the Bible taught and proclaimed is a great blessing. But if you are hearers only, if you go home and ignore what you hear, if you go home and embrace your sin, instead of embracing Christ and holiness, you stubbornly hold on to your sin and say, I prefer this over Christ, your punishment will be far more severe. The people who are actually ignorant will fare far better than you in judgment than you will. Matthew 11, Jesus warned the cities of his day that the revelation they had received in his miracles made their rejection of him far worse. Remember this, Matthew 11, verse 22? Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The only thing worse than just naked sin is receiving the offer of the gospel, understanding that offer, getting an accurate view of Christ, and then choosing your sin over Jesus.
just as Jesus promised Capernaum, so the writer to the Hebrews promises the apostate. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will for the apostate on the day of judgment. Your punishment will be more severe. This brings us to the fourth warning, the fourth and final warning. Apostasy has terrifying results. Look at verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He actually quotes here from Deuteronomy. He's quoting out of Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 36. And I just want to read those and let you hear it. This is Yahweh speaking. You know the God who spoke the world into existence? The God who lights up the sun and keeps it burning? This is what he says. Vengeance is mine in retribution. In due time their foot will stumble, for the day of their disaster is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For Yahweh will render justice to his people and will have compassion on his slaves. When he sees their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. One side of that is comforting because it's a promise that God will bring justice for his people. The other side of that is horrifying because it's a promise that God will bring justice. That he will come in judgment and he will render to each according to his works and no one will escape that ultimate judgment. Especially the apostate they will receive their judgment. If you have any sense about you, that should terrify you. God is coming in judgment. And if you're walking in that path of apostasy and you're holding on to your sin, understand your judgment will be more severe, the punishment is far worse, and your end is going to be terrifying. But for those of you who have truly trusted in Christ, for those of you who continue to trust in Christ, you need to understand something. Jesus has paid for all of your sin. Those who are truly in Christ, they will stand before God, they will be declared perfectly righteous and acceptable, and what will be the evidence that they are truly His? What will be the evidence on judgment day when you stand before God and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you point to Jesus and say, because of him, what will vindicate your profession and your confession of faith? What will prove that it was genuine? A godly life. A godly life will be the proof that vindicates faith. Please do not tolerate sin in your life. Be holy. It is what you are commanded by God to be. Be holy. But for the apostate, the one who has returned back to their sin, the one who has rejected the sacrifice, they will receive exactly what their life deserves. They will be repaid for despising Christ and considering his life and death as worthless and they will receive the unmitigated wrath of God in direct proportion to their sin. 
The writer of Hebrews sums up the future for apostates with a simple statement. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There are millions of religions in the world. You sin against Allah, you got nothing to fear. You sin against one of the Old Testament gods, the Dagon or Molech or Baal. I mean, Dagon couldn't even keep himself on a, on a table. You don't got much to fear from him. Verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Running back to sin, adopting your old way of life is disaster. And you don't want to stand before the living God like that. Because in embracing your sin, you have rejected Christ, and you will stand before him without Christ. Are you embracing sin this morning? Maybe you're not doing it intentionally. Maybe it's just through spiritual neglect or laziness. Maybe it's that you have some ignorance and you, you need some help and you don't know what to do. Please get some help. Come and ask for some help. Getting some help from your church will cost you nothing. Not getting help will cost you your soul. You need to be holy. We need to be holy. I'll end it this way. I hope that this will also encourage you not only to live a holy life, but I hope it will encourage you to do one other thing. A few weeks ago, we did church discipline here. And we went to the fourth step. I hope that you are continuing to pray for him. That he would come to a genuine repentance and a genuine faith in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this wasn't the um this wasn't an uplifting message this morning. It's a heavy passage that is a burden. And we just ask that you would use this truth from your from your word. And that you would help each of us to live out a holy life. That we wouldn't run to our sin. That we wouldn't try to find our peace and our comfort in our sin. That we would meditate on the reality that Christ has paid for every sin. That those who are in Christ are perfected for all time. That we can run to a loving and merciful Heavenly Father in repentance and in faith. And we can always find mercy through Christ. We can always find forgiveness in Christ. We ask that you would help us not to forget that, not to forget that reality, that you would help us in our sin, that we would run to Christ, that when we feel guilty, that we would run to the precious blood of our Savior, that we can be washed and renewed and forgiven completely. And Father, we do lift up to you, David. You know the condition of his heart. You know the condition of his soul. You know where he stands. And Father, we beg that you would open his eyes, that you would bring him to repentance, that these passages would not be true of him, that these passages would not be true of anyone in this church or anyone that we know. 
And Father, I do ask one last thing, that you would give comfort to the believers here. That they will be able to trust that you will hold them fast. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.